I want to change the world. I want to make a difference in the world. I'm sure you've heard someone say that before. Uh, Perhaps you have even said that before. Perhaps you have even desired to be a a part of of working toward that in one form or another. Uh, Perhaps you didn't really want to change the world or make a difference in the world, but you especially wanted to serve God in the world. Uh, You wanted to make a spiritual difference in this world. Perhaps one of your heart's desires has been to see Jesus exalted and loved and worshipped where he has not been. But you didn't know how or where to begin. This morning, as we consider Genesis 46 and just a little bit of Genesis 47, we see that as God brings his people through this world, he blesses this world through his people. God blesses the world through their faithful living in a fallen world. God blesses the world through their faithful labors in the world. God blesses the world through their faithful witness to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his saving power found in him. Really, it is through their ordinary faithfulness that God, for his glory, is pleased to do extraordinary things. And through, through what God is doing in the life of Jacob, as we're going to see this morning, we see something of how to bless the world. We are nearing the end of our final, of the final major section of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 37 to 50 have been recounting how God has been faithful to his promises to send his Messiah through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and really now Jacob, as we're looking at his family. He's also called Israel. Uh, Since chapter 37, we've been seeing that there's been a rift in the family. Uh, One of Jacob's sons was sold into slavery by his brothers. But God was using even that sinful act to accomplish his saving purposes. God exalted Joseph, the son that was sold into slavery, to second in command of Egypt. And from there, Joseph orchestrated a plan to save the world from famine. And especially his family was carrying the promises of the Messiah with them. Through a winding path, God has brought reconciliation among the brothers. And Jacob, who, was, uh, who uh, thought his favorite son was dead, Joseph, uh, has been persuaded to bring his entire family down to Egypt. Uh, Genesis 45, the chapter we closed with last time, uh, closed with Jacob resolving to go and see Joseph. And in the passage that we're looking at together today, we see that God brings his people to Egypt and blesses Egypt through his people. So Jacob, he makes this journey in which God promises to go with him. And then when Jacob finally stands before Pharaoh, it is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. This is what Moses wanted to communicate to his original audience, that God leads his people to and through the nations to bless the nations. And that's the teaching of this text. God brings his people to Egypt and blesses Egypt through his people. This is how God deals with his people today. God with his, is with his people in this world. He's, he's leading us through this world. And through his people, he is blessing the world. So, beloved, that's the, that's the sermon in a sentence. God brings his people through this world and blesses the world through his people. There should be a full outline in the bulletin that's provided that may help you to follow along. You'll notice very early on that there is a typo. I clearly couldn't decide whether or not to entitle the sermon How to Bless the World or How God Blesses the World. So you can, um, you know, kind of choose your own adventure book. You can choose your own sermon title uh, as you like. Anyway, let's begin with the first point, which I don't believe is a typo. Uh, God brings his people through this world. Follow along as I read Genesis 46, verses 1 to 7. Genesis 46, verses 1 to 7. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Well, in these verses, we are given the initial descent of Israel into Egypt, but each step down into Egypt is marked with significance. The first step Jacob, also known as Israel, takes is toward Beersheba. Now, Beersheba, we must recognize, has played a significant role in the Genesis narrative. Uh, It's where the patriarchs have professed their faith in God, and where God has made his presence known to them in the past. So back in Genesis 21, verse 33, Abraham, he planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba, and we're told that he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So the ever-sojourning Abraham was declaring his faith in the everlasting God there in Beersheba. But then, some years later, as Isaac was being pushed from place to place, he came to Beersheba. And we're told this in Genesis chapter 26, verses 24 to 25. And the Lord appeared to Isaac the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. You see, Beersheba has been a significant place for Jacob too. Somewhere just outside of Beersheba, in Genesis chapter 28, the Lord met with Jacob and gave him that fantastic vision of that ladder coming down from heaven. There, the Lord assured Jacob that the covenant promises would go, would continue through him. So just like Abraham and Isaac before him, Jacob, he worships the Lord at Beersheba. He offers sacrifices, sacrifices of thanksgiving and covering of his sin in the presence of a holy God. So in God's immense kindness, and just as he had done before with each of the patriarchs, God speaks to Jacob in visions of the night there at Beersheba. Notice that God reveals who he is. God reveals where he will be and what he will do. So when God appears to Jacob, he reveals who he is. He's the God, the God of your father. This is the promise-making, promise-keeping God. Jacob can trust this God. Though all around his soul gives way, Yahweh will be all of his hope and stay. Though Yahweh is bringing him down to Egypt and out of the comfort of the promised land of Canaan, Jacob has no need to fear. And did you see why? Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God's presence brings God's peace. God tells Jacob not to fear because he will be near. One of the reasons that Jacob might be afraid is because he is leaving the land that God promised to give to his people. Here God is authorizing a departure from the promise and he's assuring Jacob in the midst of his fears. God, you see, cares about the fears of Jacob. He doesn't dismiss them, he addresses them. God wants to assure Jacob in the midst of his fears that he will be near. Beloved, we need to recognize this about our fears. Our God is greater than the greatest threats and uncertainties that our bodies and souls face in this life. 
If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is with us, then we can go with him. God promises his presence with us too. Right? Jesus has told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't it striking that in the Great Commission, in, in Matthew 28, when we're told to go into the world, the passage that Jesus tells us to go to the nations, he promised his presence, saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God also reveals what he will do there in verse 3. I will make you into a great nation. Inside the nation of Egypt, God would multiply his people, as we will come to see in the book of Exodus. It, it wouldn't matter that a new Pharaoh would one day forget Joseph. God would protect and prosper his people there in Egypt. God would prosper and protect his people so much so that on the day that God appointed, the people of Israel would walk out of the bloody doors of their homes and walk through the parted waters of the Red Sea, and a new nation would be birthed. That's why God promises there in verse 4, I will also bring you up again. It's true that the bones of Jacob in Genesis 49 would find their way back to the family cave that was in the land of Canaan. But here God is speaking not just of Jacob personally, but of Israel as well. Jacob's the representative head of Israel. That's why his name is sometimes called Israel. This is a covenantal conversation that God is keeping his covenant promises to Jacob and to Israel as a people. It has implications for the reverberations who are related uh, to this patriarch. That's part of the reason we have verses 5 to 7. We're told that Jacob brings everything and everyone with him. The verses are really pretty redundant. I don't know if you notice it, but we're told that uh, Jacob brought all of his offspring twice. We're told that of his sons twice, his grandsons twice. Moses, the author of Genesis, is, is telling us that Jacob trusted the Lord for this promise. So he brought everything and everyone with him. I hope you noticed that this worship that Jacob conducts here at Beersheba led Jacob to hearing and obeying the word of the Lord, just as our worship should do. Our hearing God's word here should make us doers of his word out there. God was bringing his people into Egypt, and now, verses 8 to 30, we're not only told who would take up residence in Egypt, but also that Jacob was reunited with Joseph. So follow along now as I read uh, Genesis chapter 46, uh, verses 8 to 27. Genesis 46 Verses 8 to 27. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben. Hanok, Paul, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Peraz, Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jahil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphon and Haggai, Shunai, Ezban, Eri, Eridah, and Eria, er Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berari, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berari, Heber, and Malkiel. 
These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jahaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not excluding Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. Let's pause there in our reading. As you see here, these verses include one of the book of Genesis' famous genealogies. And perhaps you're thinking to yourself, Famous? I mean, come on, Mike, Nobody, no one but a Bible nerd like you would like this list. Well, I want to try to create at least one more Bible nerd here this morning. Uh, this was a list that would have encouraged the generation who was receiving the book of Genesis. And this should be a list that encourages us, too. Uh, this was a list that would have encouraged the generation first receiving this book because they would have seen that God was faithful to his promises to the patriarchs. Right? God was faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He told them that he was going to multiply their offspring. And, and here we see the beginning of God's promises are coming true in the history of their nation. This was a list that would encourage the generation first receiving this book because they would have spotted kind of distant relatives in that list. The sons from whom the tribes of the people of Israel were, were counted, were from, were counted in this list. The, the great-great-grandchildren of Judah would have rejoiced to hear Judah's name mentioned in that list. The great-great-grandchildren of Naphtali would have rejoiced to hear Naphtali's name in the list. I mean, you can just see the little ones tugging on their dad's arms and legs, saying, Dad, Dad, that's, that's our tribe. There's, there's Judah. That's our tribe. And they would have been encouraged to remember that God has been faithful to them and to his promises, not only to bring the people of Israel down into Egypt, but out, up out of Egypt. This genealogy... Uh, you can probably tell it doesn't represent everyone that took up residence in Egypt. Rather, this is a, a partial and it's a stylized list. Uh, you can see that in how the number seven plays a prominent role in the list. Let me just give you a few examples. And nearly kind of every commentator recognizes th these things about this list. First, there are Leah and Zilpah's children and grandchildren, 33 plus 16. It amounts to 49 in all. Seven times seven equals... 49, all right, uh, there are a few more, here we go. Uh, then in verse 22, we'll see, we're told that Rachel's children and grandchildren total 14, seven times two equals 14. Uh, you didn't know that you were gonna have to do math facts when you came to church this morning, did you? Uh, okay, one more. In verse 25, we're told that Bilhah's children total seven, seven times one equals, yes, yeah, seven, okay. See, I knew you could do it. Okay, here's the real big payoff. 
Look at the end of the genealogy, verse 27. You see it there? You see that 70 persons in all came into Egypt. Again, this is a stylized list. Um, it, it doesn't include absolutely everyone who came into Egypt. The, the number of people coming into Egypt were more than 70 because Moses didn't mention all the names of the wives of the sons of Israel. Uh, Moses wants us to stop at 70. Seven and ten are pristine numbers in Old Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew mind. But there's also something else going on with the number 70. So in the book of Genesis, do you remember what was the last time we were given a genealogy with the number 70 in it? It was back in Genesis chapter 10. Just before the Tower of Babel, we were given the genealogy of the descendants of Noah. It's sometimes called the Table of Nations. And as the nations gathered together at the Tower of Babel, they sinned and fell in their pride. God judged the nations, and then he dispersed them. And then he called Abraham. And Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations. So not only is Moses telling us that the people of Israel are emerging into a, a new nation by this number 70, but he's also telling us that this will be the, the, new, the new nation through which a new humanity will come, who will uh, overturn what, what those nations did when they sinned and fell against God at the Tower of Babel. Moses is telling us that through this people, this nation, the seed of the promised Messiah will come, who will restore the nations to fellowship with God. That's why this list should encourage you. And right on the heels of this list, we have the glorious reunion between Jacob and Joseph in verses 28 to 30. You'll notice that Judah, he was sent ahead. He's now kind of the, the chief representative of the family. And Joseph just can't wait to see his father. And so he, he rides out to meet his father. Here is the long lost son, right? The, the son that Jacob thought was dead. This is actually the son whom, jo, uh, whom God sent ahead to preserve this nation. And thus preserve his promises of salvation. So after weeping tears of joy, Israel holds Joseph in his arms and he declares that he can die. Do you remember what the old man Simeon said when he held Jesus in his arms? When Simeon held the son of salvation in his arms in Luke 2, Simeon said this, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Like Simeon sees Jesus and can rest in peace knowing that the promises of God are coming to pass, so Jacob sees Joseph and can rest in peace. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus, I think that you should understand from this that unless you are holding on to God's chosen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart will not rest in peace. So friend, hold on to Jesus for your salvation and your consolation. Find peace in Christ this morning. For Jacob, seeing Joseph is another sign of the Lord's leading his family into Egypt. Do you see how God has brought his people down into Egypt? And beloved, those reading this book would have recognized that Egypt is not a safe place. Right? Unless the sovereign God is there with you, it's not a safe place. Egypt in the book of Genesis is where Sarai was abducted and taken into the household of, slave, uh, of Pharaoh. Egypt, in the words of our text, is not an upgrade, but a downgrade. Uh, yes, the people of Israel received the best of the land, but did you notice the language in verses 3 and 4? Twice, we're told that they're going down into Egypt. In the minds of the first audience, those who had just come up out of slavery out of Egypt, Egypt was the place of enslavement and death. That's where God was bringing his people that's where God would prosper his people, multiply his people, and where his people would bless the nations. 
Beloved, our, our experience as New Testament, the New Testament people of God is not unlike the experience of the Old Testament people of God. Uh, God brings us into difficult and dangerous places in this world. This world is not safe. Some have even half-jokingly referred to the Washington, D.C. region as Babylon. Spiritually speaking, it is not an altogether safe place. No place on this fallen earth is inherently safe. There is a reason that we're told to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus did not pray in his high priestly prayer that God would remove us from this world. No, in John chapter 17, verses 15 to 19, Jesus prayed for our protection from the evil one while we live in this world. Jesus prayed that while God is bringing us through the world, we would be sanctified in the truth, that Jesus' word is truth. And Jesus prayed that we would be sent into the world. Beloved, as we look at this reality of God bringing his people down into Egypt, we need to be encouraged to remember that just as our God was with Israel, so he is with us. God is with you. God is bringing you through this world with its many dangers and toils and snares. God has brought you safe thus far, and God will bring you safely home. But that pathway home is through this world. In the words of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That doesn't mean that they will be free of suffering or sorrows. This is where God wants you to be. In the difficulty and in the danger. For this is where God rescues sinners from eternal death. You can't bless the world unless you live in the world. This is how God blesses the world through his people. He puts his people in the world to tell others that there is salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. So let's turn now and consider our second point. God blesses the world through his people. God not only brings his people through the world, but he also blesses the world through his people. Follow along now as I read Genesis 46, beginning there in verse 31. I'm going to read to uh, chapter 47, verse 6. Genesis 46, beginning there in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock. And they have brought their livestock and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their livestock but with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. 
And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Well, God has brought his people to Egypt. And even as we saw in the last verse that we just read, they were a blessing to Pharaoh in that they were able to serve him by keeping watch over his livestock. All of this, though, it comes about by Joseph's wise orchestration. I mean, since coming into Pharaoh's service and since meeting his brothers when they first came to Egypt, Joseph has really been wisely orchestrating each successive step. So in verses 31 to 34, Joseph, he prepares his brothers for their inevitable meeting with Pharaoh. Uh, There could not be such a massive influx of people into the land of Egypt without Pharaoh taking notice. What is more... Uh, This massive influx of people are intimately related to Joseph. He's Pharaoh's second in command. Pharaoh has already invested a great deal in this family. He sent wagons and likely servants to Canaan to help carry them to Egypt. The family kind of owed Pharaoh a visit after such kindness. But Joseph knows his brothers. Joseph knows that they're all too ready to divulge information that is more harmful than helpful. Like a good attorney, he prepares his clients for the questions that will inevitably come. And so he urges his brothers in the conversation with Pharaoh to key in on the fact that they are shepherds. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. One reason why Joseph wants his brothers to stress the fact that they're shepherds is because this will make it clear to Pharaoh that they're not coming to take other people's jobs, right? They are shepherds. They want to continue to be shepherds just as their fathers have been. Makes clear to Pharaoh that Joseph is not suddenly going to start employing his family kind of in the Egyptian court, right? He has really the authority to do that, to start installing family members into the places of power. But he's not going to do that. Rather, they're looking for lands to work their livestock. And this is what the people of God have always done. God's people not only live in the world, but they also labor in the world. Work is a blessing to the world. As those made in God's image, we were made to work. Of all people, we as the people of God ought to bring God glory through our labors. Uh, The Bible teaches us that God didn't merely ordain work, but that those who work unto his glory actually find a measure of fulfillment in work. So the wise man in Ecclesiastes Chapter 2, verse 24 said this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. God has designed work to be self-supporting as well. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes that you should work with your hands so you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Joseph did not intend for his family to mooch off of the Egyptians, but to work the land that they were generously given. Work allows us to be generous too. As we learn from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, we are to do honest work with our own hands so that we may have something to share with those in need. Brothers and sisters, in the words of Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, whether you work at home, whether you work in an office, or in a field, or on the water, or wherever you work and whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. There's another reason that Joseph urges his brothers to key in on the fact that they are shepherds in the conversation with Pharaoh. Did you catch it at the end of verse 34? For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what lies behind this comment. Maybe um, shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians because it was a dirty and smelly job. You'll remember that when Joseph was brought from the prison into the palace, he was made to bathe and shave. 
before he came into the presence of Pharaoh. I mean, maybe the Egyptians are kind of neatniks. I don't know what, who knows? But whatever the case may be, Joseph is urging his brothers to be honest with Pharaoh and not to hide their family vocation. Jacob, the leader of this family, has been known throughout his life as a liar and a cheat. And the brothers, they deceive their father for more than 20 years. When it is most dangerous to be before an all-powerful king, Joseph's telling them, brothers, it's time to be honest. In fact, always be honest. Fear God more than man and speak the truth. As representatives of the God of truth and love, speak the truth in love. Friend, brother and sister, if you have been dabbling in deceit, purpose this day to seek God's forgiveness, to confess your sin, and tell the truth. Turn away from that sin. Joseph is helping his brothers to walk in the truth, and we should walk in the truth too. And honesty and is actually a blessing to the world. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air. In his 1885 track entitled Advice to Youth, so young people listen closely, uh, David Maggie said this about honesty, the child that will always tell the truth, the youth that will always tell the truth, and the man of business that will always tell the truth is sure to be relied on. Even in the absence of much that is pleasing in deportment and amiable in disposition, a well-established reputation for simple, straightforward, undeviating honesty never fails to secure respect and confidence. I mean, so you can be good-looking and well-dressed, but if you are not conversant in the truth, you will not be respected or trusted. And truth is what we need in our society and in our lives. So let us, young and old, tell the truth like Joseph urged his brothers to. So having prepared his brothers, in the first verse of chapter 47, we see that Joseph, he enters in and he prepares Pharaoh. Notice what he does. He tells Pharaoh that his family has arrived and that they have arrived with their flocks and, that, and herds and that they're presently in the land of Goshen. That's where Joseph really wants his family to end up. Actually, he's been angling for his family to end up there since Genesis chapter 45, verse 10. Joseph is kind of subtly planting this idea in Pharaoh's mind. Though many scholars are not certain of Goshen's exact location, it appears that Goshen was likely either on the outskirts of kind of Egyptian territory or that it was perhaps a kind of secluded area in Egypt. The people of Israel dwelling in Goshen would have served multiple purposes. One, it would have limited their assimilation into the surrounding pagan culture. The Old Testament commands not to marry and assimilate into surrounding pagan cultures were never racially motivated. That's not what this is about here. This is about religion. They're religiously motivated. God has always wanted his people to remain distinct from the world and keep their worship pure. So uh, people from other uh, backgrounds, other ethnic backgrounds, like Rahab was a Canaanite. She joined in with the people of Israel. People from different ethnic backgrounds could join in with the people of Israel so long as they were professing the religion of Israel, trusting in Yahweh as the one true God. But God has wanted to keep his people and their worship pure as opposed to syncretistic worship, which the people of Israel would struggle with later on in Kings and the Prophets. And pure worship is actually a blessing to the world. It's a blessing to the world as the world is able to see with great clarity that there is no one like our God. He is utterly unique and holy. So when friends and family who are not followers of Jesus and perhaps adherents to different religions attend our worship services, we want them to see what is different about our worship. We want them to see that it is God-focused and God-centered, not focused upon us. We want them to see that it's not a performance, 
but a personal engagement with the living God. That's why we want to see everyone singing and everyone praying together. We want them to see it's not merely a service which engages the emotions of the heart, but also the mind. In verses 2 to 6, Joseph, he then presents his brothers to Pharaoh. I don't know if you notice this, but he only brought five of them. Why not bring the whole lot? I don't know. Uh, maybe these were the most presentable brothers. Uh, I mean, this probably happens in your family, right? Um, some members just clean, clean up a little bit better than others. Uh, maybe these were kind of the more respectable sons. We don't really know. Maybe Joseph just wants to make the best possible case before Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, he, you see there, he asks the predictable questions in verse 3, and Joseph's brothers give the scripted answers in verses 3 and 4, and they add to it the request to dwell in Goshen. They even say, please. So I commend to you the use of please on the basis of this passage. It's just plain polite. Um, given that Pharaoh has been told that they're dwelling in Goshen, and that the brothers have asked to dwell in Goshen, in verse 6, Pharaoh comes up with the idea for them to dwell in Goshen. But Pharaoh has another idea too. Pharaoh asks Joseph that if he knows any able men among his brothers, that he would put them in charge of his livestock. Now, perhaps the Pharaoh's been impressed by these brothers. Or perhaps, since everything that Joseph has done has been a blessing to Pharaoh and to Egypt, that he believes that maybe God's blessing rests upon this family too. So let's put them into our service as well so they can be a blessing to our nation. Here, the people of God are positioned to bless Pharaoh by serving him as shepherds. Beloved, we've already thought about how our labors are a blessing to the world, but observe how faithfulness and honesty and integrity can also be a blessing to the world. In all of our labors, let us be known for our love of the truth. But we also need to be honest about honesty. I mean, results may vary when you're honest. Your unwavering commitment to honesty does not necessarily mean that you'll receive a promotion and then another promotion or another promotion. A love of the truth and a commitment to the truth is a blessing to the world, but not all in the world perceive it that way. Nevertheless, we who call ourselves the people of God should remain steadfastly committed to the truth and laboring in the truth for the blessing of the world. God's people live in the world. They labor in the world. They live for truth in the world. And all of this is a blessing to the world. But in the final, and what is perhaps the most dramatic scene in our passage we see that God's people actually carry the blessing of the Lord to the world. Follow along now as I read Genesis 47, verses 7 to 12, where we see Joseph present his father to Pharaoh and provide for his family. And in the middle of this, we see that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Genesis 47, verses 7 to 12. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood, before, stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of, your, of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Did you notice that we, that twice, were told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh? 
Jacob blessed Pharaoh, you see there in verse 7 and in verse 10. And you might think nothing of this, but in ancient Near Eastern culture and in the Bible, the greater always blesses the lesser. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7, we read this. It is beyond dispute. It's, it's a settled matter, right, what Hebrews says, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's why back in Genesis 14, King Melchizedek blessed Abraham. But that's not what happens here. Jacob turns up in the court of the king of Egypt, and little old Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now think about the contrast between these two men. Pharaoh, the wealthiest and most powerful man, perhaps in the world, the one who sent wagons to carry Jacob and his entire family to Egypt. He's there, and then there is Jacob, who is feeble and weak and in need of land. <laughs> but Jacob blesses Pharaoh. What's going on here? I mean, has is Jacob's mind going? Is his old age getting to him? Has he got the ancient customs backward? Not at all. Well, then is Jacob full of pride? Uh, is he too big for his britches? I mean, not at all. Jacob is a man who's humbled by God and his life's circumstances. I mean, just look again at what he says to Pharaoh in answer to the question about his age. You see that verse 9? The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Jacob's saying he's, he's even less than his fathers before him. Jacob blessing Pharaoh is not a matter of pride. Jacob considers himself lesser than his father Isaac, lived 180 years, lesser than his grandfather Abraham, lived 175. Jacob's only 137 years old. Jacob's life has not been um, marked by prestige, but by pain. I mean, that phrase, few and evil, have been the days of the years of my life, summarizes all of the difficulty that Jacob has endured. I mean, just, just think about, through, through Genesis, what he has gone through. If you were to follow Jacob's life through Genesis, you would see that his life began with conflict in his mother's womb with his brother. His brother wanted to murder him, so he fled home, never to see his mother again. Jacob went and lived in a foreign land. Jacob's father-in-law deceived him on his wedding night. His wives fought. They used him for selfish gain. Jacob had to hatch an escape plan from his father-in-law, or else he would never get out from under his thumb. And his father-in-law chased him all the way out of town. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was defiled. Jacob's sons went through and murdered the men of an entire village, forcing him to move his family. His beloved wife died. His father died. Then one of Jacob's sons tried to usurp and demolish his authority in the presence of his brothers. Jacob's sons bickered and fought. They couldn't even speak peaceably to one of their brothers, so they eventually sold him into slavery. And his own sons led him to believe for more than 20 years that his son was dead. One of his sons was imprisoned. He thought that he would lose his youngest son. And now he has left the comfort of his own home, like a long journey to Egypt. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Seems to be an understatement. I mean, many of us grieve the few and evil days that we have experienced. And we need to recognize that we have a fellow sojourner and sufferer in Jacob. Reflect on the fact that Jacob, a feeble old man, 137 years old, says that few 
have been his days. He is content with the number of days that God has given him. God was present with Jacob in all of that pain. Do you understand that God's presence does not exempt you from pain? No, God's presence propels you and carries you through that pain, drives you to depending upon him so that you make it through. And that is a witness to the world, Christian, that you trust in God through trials is a blessing not only to your brothers and sisters, but also to the world. But there's more. That phrase, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, is also an admission of Jacob's own guilt and sin for God. Evil had been in Jacob's life because Jacob had done evil. He sinned against his father. He deceived them. He sinned against his brother. He swiped and stole his blessing. He, his father-in-law, he sinned against and others. Jacob was not an innocent man. He was a guilty sinner before God. And yet he had come to know the forgiveness of God. Have you confessed your sin before God? Have you confessed that your days have been filled with evil, in part because you too have done evil. What Jacob came to understand that he was a blessed man. He had the pardon of God, the promises of God, and the presence of God. God's Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who would come and die for Jacob's sins, was going to come through his offspring. He had more than the mightiest king, Pharaoh, ever had. What, what could Pharaoh give to Jacob? When Jacob's God owned the world and all that was in it. Jacob wasn't afraid of standing in the presence of Pharaoh. Jacob had stood in the presence of the mighty God. Jacob had wrestled with an angel of the Lord. Having been in the presence of the Lord of the universe, what is the presence of a mere king on earth? Beloved, do you know that every Sunday morning we gather here together and the presence of the Lord, the sovereign of the universe, is with us. Moses tells us that Jacob really is the greater in this scene between him and Pharaoh. And Moses is telling us that Jacob has come to understand the missionary call of God's covenant with Abraham. Right In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what is, what is Jacob doing there? He's blessing one of the families of the earth there, represented in Pharaoh. Here is Jacob taking God's blessing to the nations, to Egypt. And Christian, you need to learn this from Jacob. Wherever you go in this life, you don't need to be dumbstruck by earthly power. Yes, we must honor those in authority over us, but they are men of flesh and bone and sin, just like you. Christian, in union with Christ, in union with the reigning king of the universe, you stand ready to inherit the entire cosmos. And you can offer that eternal blessing to the great and powerful, to the small and weak. Christian, this is what you should do. Like Jacob, you should introduce others to the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come to know the blessing of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Way back here in the book of Genesis, God promised that he would send his son to rescue us from our sin and death and the eternal punishment that we deserve in hell. God carried that story of salvation and eternal blessing in his son all the way through history. And one day, 
God's Son entered into human history. The eternal Son of God, he took on human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we have not lived. Jesus lived the life of perfect righteousness. He kept God's law for us. Jesus was sinless where we have been sinful. Jesus not only lived for sinners like us, but he also died for sinners like us. That's what he did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that was due to our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the tree and died. And three days after Jesus' death, God the Father raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable to to God. And that if we turn from our sin and trust in him, that we will be accepted by God and received into his eternal kingdom and recipients of his blessing of salvation. Friend, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And if you want to know more about what it means to come to know the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member or coworker that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that we want to talk to you about than this good news in Jesus Christ, that we can know this eternal blessing of salvation found in him. And beloved, dear Christian, do you see how in Jacob, God's people carry the blessing of the Lord to the world? But what resources do we have for this? What resources do we draw upon in order to carry the blessing of the Lord to the world? The resources that God provides. That's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Do you you see how there in verses 11 and 12, the verses that close our passage, that God provides for his people through his appointed Savior, right? Joseph is that appointed Savior, the one that God sent ahead to make sure that his people would have a place to live and food to provide them with. Joseph, God's appointed Savior for his people, provides for God's people. Joseph gave his family a place in Goshen, also known as Ramses, we see here. But notice that word possession there in verse 11. You see that word possession? This was a temporary possession. For the land that God promised they would possess was in Canaan, and even further than that, in the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever land we possess here is a temporary possession. For we are looking forward to our eternal Canaan. We see too that Joseph, He provided food for their needs. Our Lord Jesus nourishes us along the way too. Jesus nourishes us through our ordinary labors in this world. And Jesus spiritually nourishes us through the food of his word week by week. Beloved, all that we need for faithful living in this world is found in our Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God brought his people down to Egypt and blessed Egypt through his people, so God is bringing us through this world and to the next And along the way, he calls and commissions us to bless the world. So who are you inviting to come to know the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ? I am regularly encouraged by the emails and text messages I get from you telling me that you have invited a friend or a coworker to church. Beloved, keep going. Keep inviting. Week by week, invite one more person in this world to come to know the blessing of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, invite them to church, but invite them to trust in Jesus. Jesus is the greatest blessing that you have come to know, and Jesus is the greatest blessing that you can share. So as God brings you through this world, live for Jesus, labor for Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. And in so doing, you will participate in the means that God uses to bless the world. Let's pray for the grace to do that now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the blessing that we have come to know in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our source of eternal sustenance. And Father, we pray and ask that you would help us to see in, in Jacob and his boldness to offer your blessings to Pharaoh, that you would give us boldness like that, to so rest upon your power and strength that we would tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray and ask that you would give us the privilege of seeing others come to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, allow us to see your blessings flow as far as the curse is found. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.